Hollywood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We are right now in the middle of a three-week series on the modern-day temple of God. You know, that video talks about the temple that was existing at the time of Jesus, a temple that was built by Zerubbabel and expanded upon by Herod, and the temple that Jesus saw in his day that had this giant curtain, veil, inside the temple that separated God from man. That temple was the place of God's presence within the world, and that temple was completely flattened in 70 A.D., And yet the New Testament continues to talk about the fact that there is a modern-day temple of God. And over the last last week and this week and next week, we're doing a short series on this modern-day temple, what it is and how we participate in it as believers in Christ. Uh, Last week, we began our series by by looking at the book of uh, 1 Peter and talking about how this modern-day temple is actually something that is made up of different living stones, believers like you and I that apart don't appear to be much, but stacked together form the very temple or resting place, the presence of God within the world. Apart, you cannot see the beauty that you can see when we come together as believers in the church to see our purpose, to see the beauty and the grandeur of God. We began our series last week by looking at that from 1 Peter chapter 2. And this Sunday, we're going to continue that by looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, and a second aspect of what it means to be the living temple of God today. No longer just fixed in one location in Jerusalem, the temple of God is now, wherever God's people are found, a living temple with God's presence within His people, the church. We saw in the video that Christ's death created the possibility for man to have a relationship with God, to not be separated from Him any longer. But there was something else that happened with the death of Christ, that we had the opportunity to have unity and peace with each other. Christ provided a way for there to be peace between men and men, women and women, men and women, All of that foundation was established in the death of Christ. And today, by looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22, we're going to see what the theological anchor for that belief is. And we're going to take a look at that today. But before we open up and look at Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, let me uh, pray for our time. Father, I just want to thank you so much for today. I thank you for the opportunity to be together with your people and to worship you in spirit and in truth. And Father, as we're even learning in this study, that you are present in a special way this morning. Father, as we gather together, living stones stacked as a part of your throne in this world. And Father, we come to you and we want you to teach us. Pray that your spirit would guide us in an understanding of your word. And we pray that you would protect me from saying anything that you wouldn't want said. But if I do say something that you wouldn't want said, Father, I pray that it would just quickly be forgotten. If anything I say this morning that you would want us to hear, I pray that we would remember it, we would believe it, 
we'd embrace it by faith and walk forward in obedience that we might be continually shaped more into the image of your Son. And we pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, we're going to look today at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. And so if you've got a Bible, you might want to open there. Uh, we're going to camp there and spend a good bit of time this morning looking at Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22. I'm going to read through it, and then we'll walk back and, and unpack it a little bit for us today. Beginning in verse 11, Paul writes to the Ephesians and says this, says, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross." By it, having put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the very cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And in these 11 verses today, I think we're going to see three things that talk about the unity that comes as believers in Christ and our opportunity to have a relationship with God in this new temple as rolling stones as God stacks us together. The first thing that I think that we need to see is a condition that exists for mankind uh, from the beginning of time. That is this, without Christ, we are at war with each other and with God. Without Christ, we're at war with each other and with God. We, We see this anchored in the first two verses of the section that we're looking at today. In verse 11, it begins to talk about the difficulty that people have of relating with each other. And specifically, in the first century church, this difficulty was made manifest in the the fact that Jews and Gentiles, people from Jewish backgrounds and Gentile backgrounds, had a hard time getting along. See, in the church at that time, there were basically two categories of people. There were those from a Jewish background, that is, there were people that had grown up uh, in a Jewish context. They had been of the nation of Israel, They had worshipped in the temple for their families for centuries before. They were the ones who had received the the covenant promises of God, passed down from generation to generation to generation. There were some of those who had embraced faith in Christ, and they were within the church, within the church of Ephesus, as Jewish background Christians. And then there was everybody else. Those were the Gentile background Christians. These were the people who had grown up 
in non-Jewish homes and had now embraced faith in Christ. They had followed any number of pagan religions or no religion at all, but now they found themselves in a relationship with Christ. And, and what this verse reminds us of was that in the first century church, there was great conflict between those two groups. There was, there was, you could call it racism, you could call it bigotry, but there was real trouble between Jewish and Gentile background Christians relating to one another. Uh, verse 11 uh, tells us that the Gentiles were called the uncircumcision by the circumcision. The Jewish people would call all the Gentile folks the uncircumcision. And that doesn't sound like much to us, but to them it was a big deal. That would be like calling them whatever you could imagine the, the worst racial epithet you could, you could attack, attach to somebody. The, the worst racial slur someone could speak to you or to a friend of yours. When they called them the uncircumcision, that's exactly what the Jewish background people were doing. They were trying to put down the Gentiles. You see, without Christ, they were divided and apart. They were at war with one another, the Jews and the Gentiles. But what's interesting is that not only were they at war with one another, the Jewish and the Gentile background folks, but apart from Christ, they were also at war or separated from God himself. Verse 12 tells us that people separate from Christ, it says, specifically speaking to the Gentiles, but this actually applies to all who are separate from Christ. It says that those who are separate from Christ, verse 12, are excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, they weren't a part of God's covenant people. They had no connection to God. He had made no promises to protect them, to provide for them, to give them eternity, to forgive their sins. They were, they were separate from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. Without Christ, that describes us. This is having no hope and without God in the world. Without Christ, we have no hope. That doesn't mean that without Christ you can't have hope that the economy will improve, or without Christ you can't have hope that you, your job might get better, or that you might end up in a relationship that you like. It means that without Christ you have no hope of an eternity with God in heaven. You have no hope of the forgiveness of your sins. Without Christ, we have no hope because we're without God and His promises in the world. That was the case for all those in this current day Without Christ. Without Christ, they were at war with one another, Jews and Gentiles. Without Christ, they were at war with God and separate from Him. You know what? That same thing applies to us today. Without Christ, our world is at war with one another. When you think about some of the impacts of sin being passed on from generation to generation to generation, that all of us are descendants of Adam, all of us have a sin nature. Part of the impact of that is that people find themselves divided against each other. We want to determine some kind of pecking order where one group of people is better than another. It leads to things like bigotry and racism. In this country, it has been primarily over time a, a black-white issue. But we know that, that bigotry and racism is not something that is just American. Look in all cultures, based on ethnic differences. There's genocide in places like Darfur or Rwanda. It's just a part of our sin nature that makes us want to be divided against each other for whatever reason, for race, 
for, for sex, men and women divided against each other because of finances, the rich separate from the poor. We want to develop some kind of a class system where some are in the privileged and some are second class, and, and that can impact our understanding of the way it is even within the church. It was true within the first century church. It's also true within the church today. We can want to divide based on all of these things, and it's a part of the impact of sin. Without Christ, we're at war with one another. But without Christ, we're also at war with God. We have no peace with Him. We are separate from God. Apart from what Christ has done, we have no hope of having our sins forgiven or of spending an eternity with God in heaven. You know, you think about that, and maybe an example that maybe will help us to understand this a little more. You think, how can I possibly be totally without hope for eternity apart from Christ? Well, the, the reality is that, morally speaking, this, this example holds true. You know, I, I, like to play, I like to play golf, and uh, this weekend I actually even got to play golf uh, in a scramble uh, with some other guys, and, and we had a good time out playing in this scramble. And, you know, I think we, we, we hit the ball 63 times as a team. That was our score in the scramble. And uh, I think we used maybe one of my shots in that 63 times. So, you know, I, I'm not a very great, very good golfer, but, but because I had maybe one shot that was used, it's possible for me to think, well, I have some hope in the game of golf. But let's just imagine this. Let's say that I went out to play golf against Phil Mickelson. Just me and Phil, we're going to play golf, mano y mano. Righty against lefty. We're going to go after it. You know, and I might think, well, I, I might be able to hit an occasional good shot, but the reality is I have no hope at beating Phil Mickelson in the game of golf. You know, his average score is going to be like 65. My average score is going to be something larger than 65, and, and he's going to beat me. He's going to beat me mercilessly. I'm going to have no hope in playing him in the game of golf. And you know what? The same thing is true when it comes to our standing before God apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, we have no hope at having a relationship with him because he's a holy God. And we might think in our own mind, we might be able to hit the right note occasionally. We might might be able to hit the right shot morally occasionally. But certainly, and even biblically speaking, we'll never, ever get there on our own. Apart from Christ, we are without hope in the world. We are at war with each other. We're at war with God. That's the state of mankind. But the passage goes on and gives us all a a great deal of hope because it says that with Christ, with Christ, we're at peace with each other and with God. Without Christ, we're at war with each other and with God. With Christ, we're at peace with each other and with God. Beginning in verse 13, he begins to unpack this truth for us. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What this is saying is that that Jesus, when he died on the cross, and his blood was shed on that cross, he created a, a possibility that was not present for us before. An option for us who would have been separate from God forever to be brought near to him because Jesus' death would take all of the penalty that your and I's sin deserves. 
we have the opportunity because Christ's death for us to be brought near and into a relationship with God. We have the possibility of hope returning, of peace with God as a real option because of what Christ has done for us. And it's interesting, it says that this is something those who were formerly far off have been brought near. The idea there is that it's a, a passive action to us for us to be brought near. You know, yesterday our college ministry hosted a 5K run for uh, Haiti, raised about $3,000 for the nation of Haiti in, in the earthquake relief. It was, it was a great event, but in this 5K run, 3.1 miles, um, my whole family participated, myself, my wife, and my three-year-old son, Joshua. And when we, when we started the race, uh, you know, I, I took off, and Kimberly and Josh uh, were moving, and you know, at the end of the race, Josh made it to the finish line. But one thing that was really interesting about it was he didn't make it to the finish line in his own strength. His legs are just too short. He made it to the finish line because my wife put him in a stroller and pushed him there. He made it all the way there, but it was her action that got him there. He sat in the chair and she pushed it all the way to the finish line. And you know, when it comes to our relationship with God, we are without hope in the world apart from Christ. But in Christ, we have the opportunity to be brought near to God. Not that we run all the way to God ourselves, not that we clean our act up and we live righteous enough so that God would accept us into his sight, but that in Christ, because of his work, we're able to be brought near to him. Those of us who were formerly far off have been brought close because of his work on our behalf. And as we've been brought close to him, it's brought peace between people. Look at what it says. The the very first thing he says in verse 14, it says, For he himself, meaning Jesus, is our peace, who made both groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. See, one of the, the impacts of Jesus' death on the cross was not just tearing the veil and giving us access to God, but it was providing an opportunity for mankind to relate to one another in a peaceful way, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of upbringing, regardless of finances. He made it possible for us to be together because it says he tore down the dividing wall. Now, what, what's, he, what's he referring to there? When that original temple that Jesus saw in his day, the temple that we saw the video about, the temple that Zerubbabel built and that Herod expanded upon, that temple actually had an area around the outside where Gentiles were permitted to go. But then there was a wall called the balustrade wall that that was inside of the outer walls, but before you actually entered the inner part of the temple. Gentiles could come to the balustrade, but they could not go through it on into the inner part of the temple. There was a wall that literally separated the Jews from the Gentiles in God's economy at that time. And what Paul is saying is that 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 wall has been destroyed. And, And the people in Ephesus, this would have meant something to them. Because the book of Acts chapter 21 talks about how one of the residents of Ephesus named Trophimus, who had come to faith in Christ, went with Paul to Jerusalem And Paul took him to the temple, and Paul was actually accused of taking Trophimus past the balustrade into the inner part of the temple. 
And because of that, the Jewish people there were so infuriated, they wanted to kill Paul and Trophimus and everybody involved for the blasphemy of taking a Gentile man past the balustrade. When Trophimus returned home, don't you think he would have told that story? And Paul says, remember that wall that used to separate the people of of, of Israel from the, the, the Gentile folks in the temple? In Christ, that wall has been torn down. Now that doesn't mean that when Christ died on the cross, as the, as the curtain was literally torn, it doesn't mean that the balustrade wall literally fell down. But it does mean in the modern day temple that Christ is building, there is no segregation wall. There is no wall that says people of this ethnic background have this much access to God, people of that ethnic background have something less. The idea is that there is no more balustrade wall. Everyone within the temple today, the modern day temple that, that God is building, has full access to God and to his blessings and to his worship and to his truth. See, the wall has been devo- de- demolished. Uh, verse 15 says that also Christ abolished in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. The idea there is that Christ was going to abolish or to place out of business a certain portion of the Jewish law at the time that separated Jews from Gentiles. Things like what they ate. In the the old covenant, the Jews were not permitted to eat certain kinds of of foods, like ham. And, And what he's saying here is that that portion of the law has been placed out of business. It's been rendered ineffective. This thing that used to divide Jews and Gentiles no longer is relevant because that portion of the law has been abolished or or stopped or placed out of business by Christ himself. This is one of those verses that if you really enjoy eating bacon, you ought to memorize and thank God for. We have the opportunity to eat certain foods because Christ made it possible. You're living as a person in relationship with God in 700 B.C., you're not eating bacon. But today it's possible because that part of the law has been done away with. It's been put out of business by Christ himself so that Jews and Gentiles might, in the new temple of God, have those things not dividing them any longer, like the foods that they eat. It says also that he made the two into one new man. The Jews and the Gentiles who were separate now are together in Christ. See, when Jesus died on the cross, how many deaths did he die? He died one death. How many bodies did he have? One body. When Jesus resurrected from the dead, how many bodies walked out of the tomb? His body walked out of the tomb. Because of that, because of the one body of Christ died on the cross, he will present to God one body, not a divided body, not one body of Gentiles, one body of Jews. He will present to God one body of people. We're united together regardless of our background. All who have embraced the work of Christ are united before him in one body. It's a powerful, powerful thought to think about. People that Otherwise, would be so separate are now together. 
And I watched a, a documentary recently that, that I loved. It was a documentary about uh, Larry Bird and, and Magic Johnson. If you, if you love basketball and you grew up in the 80s or you watched basketball in the 80s, that, that was, they, were, they were at the top of the heap. But they were, they were mortal enemies from their time in college all the way through their time in the NBA. They, they, they fought each other. They, they wanted to beat each other more than anybody else in the league. But something interesting happened in 1992. These two guys who were, had made a career out of defeating the other suddenly found themselves on the same dream team playing for Olympic gold. And it was interesting that that was enough to unite these two guys. They, were, they, they no longer were enemies. They were on the same team. And when you think about what happened in Christ, all of those around us that we might think were different from them, we make different kinds of money, we speak different languages, we have different skin tone, whatever the things we want to use to divide us, those things pale in comparison to the fact that we're on the same dream team. We've been united together in one body to be presented to God. You see, he has made peace between each other. But even more than that, he's made peace between all of us together and with God himself. It says, in verse 16, that he might reconcile both of us in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. See, the idea here is that all of us together have the opportunity to be reconciled to God. You know, if you're here today, if you walked in that door without hope in this world because you did not know Christ, know that what is being offered to you is peace with God, peace within the body of Christ because of what Christ has done for you. I I would challenge you today, if that describes you, if you walked in hopeless, don't walk out that way. Place your faith in Christ and his work on the cross that we might be brought near to God. But I think there's another application that's important for us to remember as believers in the church today. That application is this. In the first century, the church was divided over racism and bigotry. It was divided over things that they wanted to use to divide the church. Jew and Gentile. You know, today, we don't necessarily have that problem. We don't divide Wildwood, at least that I'm aware of, in any kind of way that is Jewish and Gentile. That's just not our issue. But, you know, it's possible that the church, our church, as well as the church in general, can find ourselves dividing over different issues, dividing over race, dividing over, over language, dividing over economics, dividing over whatever things we might come up with. And one of the things this passage argues strongly against to me is to, for all of us to ask questions of our own heart. Really, that's, that's where, it's, where, it's, where it's at. Are we exhibiting any kind of division that way where we're grading people, saying that these people, because of whatever reason, are the more spiritual set and these are second class? One thing that this passage argues strongly against is having any kind of root of that within our souls. The fact is that there is one body that Christ wants to reconcile to God together. 
What an incredible gift that he's given to us. Without Christ, we're at war. With Christ, we're at peace with each other and with God. You know, for us today, many of us, uh, if you've grown up in the church, you have the opportunity really of, though we're not of Jewish background, to functionally, applicationally, according to this passage, be like a, the Jewish person. Is it possible that we're forgetting the unity that Christ has brought? Those are two things I want us to see. But The third one is this. The third truth I think we need to take from this passage is this. Wildwood is a stone in God's temple. Wildwood is a stone in God's temple. Uh, we see this from verses 19 through 22. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The idea of this, those, those verses there is that God is building His temple, His modern-day temple today, and He's wanting to fit us into that. And this is a truth that we saw last week, but, but really the idea from this section is slightly different from the purpose we saw last week. Last week, he talked about how all of us are living stones. When we stack together in our individual congregations, there's a presence of God that is there. Uh, I think the idea in Ephesians 2, though, is something larger than that. You see, in Ephesians 2, verse 21, uh, this passage, uh, in most English translations, translated, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. But another very valid translation of that, and I think the correct translation would be to say this, in whom each building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. The idea there is that each individual congregation is like a block in this massive structure that God is building in His modern day temple where the the presence of God might be felt in this world. Each congregation plays a part in the presence of God on the planet. Wildwood, being a a congregation of people who have embraced the gift of Christ on the cross for our sins, are one stone in God's modern-day temple. And it's interesting that the, the idea of temple here is not that of the outer courts, but it's that of the very inner part of the temple of God. Not separated by the balustrade, but the very inner part of the temple of God. We are all, as a part of this church, a part of the structure of God's presence within this world. That's a very powerful, powerful thought to see that. And and we're built onto a foundation that was established in the first century. It says there that Christ Jesus is the cornerstone and the foundation is made up of the apostles and the prophets. The idea is that this temple that God is building, this modern day temple, has been a construction project that began when Christ died on the cross and has been added a stone at a time as every believer has been added from that point until this one. We're all a part of the same temple. We're all a part of the same, you know, capital C church as the original foundation. That means that as we gather here today, that we're a part of the same 
temple of God as Luther's church in Germany. We're a part of the same temple of God as Calvin's church in Switzerland. We're part of the same temple of God as Spurgeon's church in England. The same temple of God as Edward's church in New England. The same temple of God, Wildwood is a part of that. We're a part of what God has been doing from the very start. And that ought to create a couple of thoughts within us. One, it ought to make us proud. It ought to make us excited that we are a part of this building that God has been constructing from the very beginning. We get to see God work in our very presence and and we get to celebrate that. What What a privilege it is to be up close and center to God's plan in the world. But the other thing is it ought to keep us from being prideful. We ought to be proud, but we, we shouldn't be prideful. See, we're just one stone in a mighty temple structure. Now, it's possible if you are a part of a church that you love, to become prideful about that church, to think that we're the church that's got it all together. We're the church that's doing everything right. And then when you get in that spot, then you become the church critic for every other congregation. You begin thinking, well, we're the one to do it right. Everybody else does it wrong. Well, you know, how long does your pastor preach for? 27 minutes? Oh, my word. We preach for 35. We really get it right. We understand the Bible. We, we care about the Bible. You obviously don't. Eight minutes? Are you kidding me? It's an eternity. You might think, you know, what kind of style of worship do you have? Oh, uh, we have it. We have it right. We have Greg Hill. We have the Wildwood Worship Band. It's possible for us to become prideful and to think that we're the ones who have it all right. But the reality is that we're one stone in a mighty temple. So we should be proud that God is using us, but not prideful. Because we're not the only ones that is displaying the glory of God. You see, Christ's death on the cross brings us peace with each other. And it brings us peace with God. This unity is a mystery. It's something that is unfathomable on our own, but is a gracious gift of God in Christ. And as we end the service today, we're going to sing a song that points us to the fact of the unity we have in Christ because of his death on our behalf. We're going to sing that in just a moment. But before we do that, I just want to invite any of you here today who are new to Wildwood, uh, we're going to be having a newcomer lunch immediately after we sing this song out in the gathering hall. I want to invite you to come and to join us for that lunch. If you're here and you're thinking, I wonder if I'm a newcomer, if you're asking yourself that question and you want to come to lunch, you're a newcomer. Come on, join us. It'll be fun. Uh, we got Qdoba, a Mexican fiesta. We'd love to have you with us today. Uh, but before we go and have that lunch, I want to uh, go ahead and pray for us. Father, we thank you, and we thank you for the fact that you have brought peace between man and you brought peace between us and you. Something that we can't accomplish on our own, you brought us near through the work of your Son. Father, I pray that you would just uh, help us to live in light of that, that, Father, you would help us to continue to cling to the death of your Son that makes it possible for us to have the peace that you offer. And, Father, I pray that you would help us to to not be prideful, thinking that our church or even our, our century or our time in church history is any better than any other because, Father, all of us are stones in your temple. Father, I pray that you would help us to follow you 
in spirit and truth. We pray these things in Jesus.